the Tom Sumner Program. Old Fashioned Radio for a New Generation. Oh, it's always a pleasure to be with you, John. You know that. Yay, Tom! I love it in Flint! You're very astute, Tom. Tom, easy question. I'll debate Andy Dillon on your show. Well, uh, that's a very good question. Uh, Hello, darling. This is Elvira, Mistress of the Dark, with Tom Sumner. I'm alright, Tom. How are you? Hey, lucky day, Mr. Ciao, Tom. How are you today? That's a good question. <laughs> Hi, this is actor, comedian Jonah Pody, and you're listening to the Tom Snyder, uh, Tom Smothers. Uh, I mean, I'm sorry, what's his name? Oh, Sumner. The Tom Sumner Program. Good morning, Tom. How are you doing? Hey, at least I got the Tom part right. The Tom Sumner Program. Old fashioned radio for a new generation. Our fellow Americans. Right now, the COVID-19 vaccines are available to millions of Americans. And soon, they will be available to everyone. The science is clear. These vaccines will protect you and those you love from this dangerous and deadly disease. They could save your life. So we urge you to get vaccinated when it's available to you. That's the first step to ending the pandemic and moving our country forward. It's up to you. MTA Flint is nationally recognized for continually seeking to provide sustainable, reliable, and cost-efficient transportation for individuals throughout the region. Through work-related and non-emergency medical transportation and your ride services, MTA is moving people with future and alternative fuel technologies. More information about MTA Flint and specialized services is available at mtaflint.org. Hi, this is Gretchen Whitmer, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. Ladies and gentlemen, in Philip Rapp's creation, the Bickersons. What's the matter? All right, all right. Blanche, Blanche. I'm putting a ribbon in my hair. Where are you going? I'm not going anywhere. I just thought I'd like to look nice this morning. Why? I knew you'd forget. You don't even know what day this is. I do, too. It's rent day. It is not. Today happens to be our wedding anniversary. Well, I knew it was a sad occasion of some kind. What kind of a remark is that? That's supposed to be funny. No, it isn't supposed to be funny, Blanche. I'm just groggy, that's all. I'm sorry. I knew you'd forget. I didn't forget it. So why didn't you say something? Blanche, I just opened my eyes. You forgot it. I tell you, I didn't forget it. But even if I did, you'd remind me of it. Happy anniversary. Happy anniversary. Is that all? No plans? We've been married eight years. Don't you want to do something? No, it's too late to do anything. It's sad about you. How you suffer. I didn't get such a bargain, you know. Okay, okay. There's better fish in the ocean than the one I caught. There's better bait, too. I'm serious. Okay, I'm sorry. You hack away at me in the morning and I'm so exhausted, I don't know what I'm saying. You wouldn't be so exhausted if you went to bed at a reasonable hour. I had to work overtime. Pour me some coffee. Get paid? I'll get paid. What time did you get home? 12.30. If you got home... 
home at 12.30. Why were you so long getting into bed? I know for a fact you didn't come to bed until almost 2. I was in the kitchen putting the stuff away. What stuff? What's the matter, Blanche? You told me to bring stuff home for the party tonight. You invited a lot of your crumb friends and you told me to bring stuff, so I brought stuff. Did you bring the potatoes for the potato salad? I brought potatoes. Did you pair them? I paired them. All of them? All except one. He had a big knob on top and I couldn't find the mate for him. I meant... I know what you meant, Blanche. I even boiled them last night. Where are my pants? Who stole my pants? Nobody stole your pants. I just looked in the wastebasket and they're not there. My shoes are missing from the sink. Don't be silly, John. Your pants are on a hanger in the closet and your shoes are in the shoe rack. How'd they get there? I put them there. Well, I wish you'd quit throwing my things around like that. (laughs) Gotta get them or I'll be late. You won't be late. Here are your pants. Thanks. Blanche, these aren't my pants. They're not? Then whose pants are they? That's a good question, only I should be asking. Don't be so snobby. They were baggy, so I pressed them. Baggy? Took me an hour to find the right crease. Be careful you don't wrinkle them now. What's the difference? I like my pants to look lived in. You're dragging the tops on the floor. Hold your trouser leg with your left hand, then step in with your right foot. Blanche, I've been putting on my own pants for over 40 years, and I don't need you to be the foreman of it. Which one? It doesn't matter. I want to use it for a belt. My suspenders are broken. Why don't you wear your belt? I'm using it to keep the soles from falling off my shoes. John Fitterson, you know you're just... I know it. I know I haven't got a belt. Where's my shirt? Where did you hide my shirt? I didn't hide it anywhere. Well, where is it? I draped it around the canary's cage so he could sleep. Is my shirt the only rag you could find to cover the bird's cage with? Hasn't hurt anything, has it? No, but I don't like the way that bird pokes into my pockets. Every time I take a cigarette out, I'm smoking bird seed. Why do you have to cover the cage anyway? The canary is sensitive to light. Well, get him a pair of sunglasses. Leave my shirt alone. No bird's going to sleep later than I do. Ah, shut up. John, why must you be so mean on our anniversary? Blanche, I'm not mean. I'm worried. Business is bad. My job is hanging by a thread. You never should have quit your other job. You made me quit. You said it wasn't dignified selling bowling balls. You were embarrassed to answer when people asked you what your husband sold. Well, it sounded like it was trying to start a fight. That's no problem for you. I gotta go. Here, and don't forget your samples. I won't forget. This darn vacuum cleaner gets heavier every day. Straighten this hose around my neck, will you, Blanche? There, there. Now, got everything? I think so. No, wait a minute. You got any money? Well, there's 50 cents in the sugar bowl. 50 cents? You can bring me the change when you come home. Now listen, Blanche, something's got to be done about this. I can't go down to work like a pauper every day. A man's got to have a couple dollars in his pocket. Now don't yell at me. I don't mind going with torn clothes and holes in my socks, but I'm not going to suffer through those lunches anymore. What's the matter with your lunches? You ought to know. You pack them for me. I'm just getting sick of carrying my lunch to work in a paper sack. Why can't I go to the restaurant like the other fellas? John, what are you talking about? I haven't fixed your lunch for two years. Oh, Blanche, every morning of my life I find my lunch wrapped in brown paper on the side of the sink. John, that's the garbage. Goodbye, Blanche. Goodbye, dear. Happy anniversary. Now 
When a virus comes along that's spreading like a plague And POTUS and his lackeys have been nothing if not vague Well then you've got to trust the CDC and listen well Unless you want to bid our free society farewell There is a Super bad, transmittable, contagious, awful virus. And if we don't act quick and social distance, it will mire us in a stretch of quarantine that lasts until July. A super bad, transmittable, contagious, awful virus. And if you got a better cough in your arm, and if you got a better... <coughs> now, back in 1918, influenza had its run. But half the docks were busy overseas with World War One. Today we have mass media and scientists to say, if you don't want this virus, well then stay six feet away. Super damn important that we practice isolation, because we're asymptomatic while it's an incubation. We'll overwhelm our hospitals if there's not mitigation. It's super damn important that we practice isolation. If we don't do it, then we're all gonna die. If we don't do it, then we're all gonna die. And so I hope at last you'll take this lesson here to heart. Cause it's already scary and we're only at the start. If you get bored, just think of the immunocompromised. Who can't go much of anywhere unless it's sterilized. Oh, super bad, transmittable, contagious, awful virus. If we don't act quick and social distance, it will mire us. In a stretch of quarantine, the last until July. A super bad, transmittable, Super bad, transmittable, contagious, awful virus. Super bad, transmittable, contagious, awful virus. Old-fashioned radio. For a new generation Tom Sumner Program.com The Tom Sumner Program.com The Tom Sumner Program.com Welcome back, everybody. This is the Tom Sumner Program. My uh, guest this hour has spent 15 years researching the historical Jesus, emphatically looking for sources not deeply investigated by his peers. He is uh, a humanities professor and author of numerous National Geographic books on the subject, including the one we're going to talk about today, In the Footsteps of Jesus, um, and uh, he joins me by phone. His name is uh, Dr. Jean-Pierre Isbouts. Jean-Pierre, welcome to the show. Um, thanks for having me. Um, how did you decide to, to chronicle the life of, of Christ and, and research the origins of Christianity? Well, that's a good question, Tom. You know, we live in a 
in an age of specialists, right? <laughs> I mean, uh, especially because I'm very active, of course, in academy and in, uh, in uh, scholarship. You know, we, we tend to think that everybody should stick to his trade. I'm sort of a, a person who likes to combine things, who likes to look at things from a multidisciplinary perspective. And I'm very blessed in that regard because I, and, um, I have degrees in, in musicology, in uh, history, and in archaeology. And, and that's what I wanted to bring to the story of Jesus. Uh, the, the character of the historical Jesus is, is someone who's fascinated me from, from, from childhood. Jean-Pierre, I've got to back you up for a minute. What were the degrees? Oh, I, I studied... Um, in graduate school, I studied uh, history, uh, art history, archaeology, and musicology uh, because I couldn't make up my mind what I wanted to do. <laughs> I, I was going to say, couldn't you decide on a major? <laughs> no, I, I just, uh, you know, I, I did my thesis on 19th century uh, music of the Balakira Circle, and then I did a thesis on American 19th century architecture. And uh, I did work on, on Renaissance art, and I, you know, my professors were sort of rolling their eyes, but I just, uh, I thought it was also so fascinating. Uh, but then I, I really got really interested in, in biblical archaeology and history. And this is because, you know, I went to university in, in the 70s when, when biblical archaeology was really just emerging uh, from, of course, the havoc of of World War II. This was also a time when uh, Israel, the Six-Day War, when Israel conquered the uh, old city of Jerusalem, and I'm not going to go into the political aspects of that, but in any case, it did allow Israeli archaeologists to start excavating um, the old city, and, and specifically, of course, the um, uh, Haram al-Sharif, as the Arabs call it, the Temple Mount, uh, where they were able to excavate parts of that great, great sanctuary, the Second Temple, which has told us, uh, has really shown us so much more. Of course, those are the famous things, but there are lots of other discoveries that don't necessarily make the headlines that are incredibly interesting and that really in informed my book, because I really wanted to, to give a holistic view of Jesus, not just the Jesus of faith, not just the Jesus of history, not just the Jesus as, as revealed in Jewish writings or in Roman writings. I wanted to bring all of that together and create a three-dimensional portrait of a man of flesh and blood, someone that we could get close to, that we could really become uh, far, far more closer than, than ever before. And uh, you know, I, I give lots of lectures on the topic, and, and people often ask me, do you think there is a, a difference between the Christ of faith and the Jesus of history? And my answer is always, well, of course there are differences, but they're not essential. The essential parameters of Jesus' incredible ministry are supported by a whole host of scientific evidence. And that's what I want to bring to this book, and in a way that is accessible, not just to specialists, but to every reader, whether you're Jewish, whether you're Christian, whether you're agnostic, just want to know more about the history. That, that was the goal when I sat down to write this book, and, 
and I'm so grateful to National Geographic that they believed in the project and that they supported it with a wonderful team. And the result is this, uh, is this beautiful book. More about the life of Jesus and the origins of Christianity with biblical scholar Dr. Jean-Pierre Isbouts is straight ahead. Everybody's doing a brand new dance now. Hi, this is Mark Farner, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. I'm Julie Lopez with Crime Stoppers. Have you ever wondered what to do if you have information about a crime or the whereabouts of a felony fugitive and you want the police to know but you need to remain anonymous? Well, here's what you can do. You can go to p3tips.com or download the mobile app. You can go to Crime Stoppers of Flint and Genesee County's Facebook page and click on the Leave an Anonymous Tip tab, or you can call 1-800-422-JAIL. All methods are anonymous, and if your help leads to a felony arrest, you may be eligible for a cash reward. Remember, your voice matters. While we've been staying safe at home, scientists have been on a journey. The destination, a COVID-19 vaccine. This journey began decades ago with research into other coronaviruses. Scientists built from there with months of research and development, cooperation with other experts worldwide, and clinical trials on tens of thousands of volunteers of diverse race, age, and health status. They arrived at a safe, effective vaccine and hundreds of thousands in Michigan have already been vaccinated. But the next step is ours. We need to get the vaccine when we can. Keep wearing masks correctly and taking precautions until we reach our destination, freedom from COVID-19 and getting back to the lives we love. Discover the facts for yourself at michigan.gov slash COVID vaccine. A message from the Michigan Department of Health and Human Services. The Tom Sumner Program plays host to the best political roundtable on radio every Wednesday from 10 a.m. to noon. Armchair Politics features great commentary and analysis about the headlines from local, state, and national politics with an alumni of world-class pundits, plus quotes, tweets, and those weird and wacky stories we call The X-Files. If it's Wednesday, catch Armchair Politics on the Tom Sumner Program. East Village Magazine is the monthly neighborhood magazine read all over Flint. With support from grants, donations, and advertisers, East Village Magazine's talented local writers give you an in-depth look at local news, issues, and people that make Flint, Flint. Copies of East Village Magazine are available at many of your favorite shops and restaurants around Flint or online at eastvillagemagazine.org. East Village Magazine, community-focused and community-supported. Discoveries. They happen when we least expect them in places we thought we knew. And discoveries have a way of teaching us a little more about ourselves along the way. Welcome to Flint and Genesee County, where up north meets down south. Home to Michigan's largest county park system and a vibrant culture. A place filled with discoveries we've yet to make throughout acres of beautiful lakes, wetlands, and woods, and in the diverse city beyond where the uplifting melodies of gospel choirs fill the air, where the work of renowned artists color the galleries and museums, where the fresh fruits and vegetables at the downtown farmer's market awaken our senses, and where the cultural center and planetarium broaden our view of the world. Let's spend a few days enjoying the wonders of Flint and Genesee County, where the joy of discovery is pure Michigan. Your trip begins at michigan.org. 
Technical assistance for the Tom Sumner program is provided by Swiftlet Technology, engineering and IT services at swiftlet.technology. I know of a place where you never get harmed, a magical place with magical charms, indoors, indoors, indoors. Take it away. Hi, this is Deb Cherry, Genesee County Treasurer, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Radio Show. More about the life of Jesus and the origins of Christianity with biblical scholar Dr. Jean-Pierre Isbouts is straight ahead. How much evidence is there for the existence and about the life of Christ outside of the Bible? And I'm talking about archaeological finds, you know, actual physical uh, evidence, historical records, etc. Well, that's a good question. And, of course, uh, we have to understand that um, this was the first century. You know, people always say, well, you know, exactly that. You know, uh, there's no evidence for Jesus. I said, well, no. He didn't have an Instagram account. Uh, there were no Polaroids of the apostles. But I think we so often bring a, 20th, a 21st century mind to an ancient problem. I think when you look at the Roman sources, we have a detailed attestation of Jesus in uh, a book written by a Jewish historian uh, working in Rome, Josephus. He describes um, the, um, he has a, a, a long paragraph about Jesus and the facts that he notes uh, are completely consonant with the Gospels. Yes, there are interpolations that were added by medieval monks who, who you know, uh, copied the work from Roman times and, and were able to preserve it for modern times, and in the process they sort of try to embellish the paragraph, but it's, it's fairly easy linguistically to ferret out the original text. That's one thing. Uh, the Roman historians, Tacitus, uh, Suetonius, refer to, to the Christ, uh, Christus, as they call him. Now, of course, they no longer understand that Christ is, uh, is the Greek translation of the word Messiah, you know, when we say Jesus Christ, what we actually mean is Jesus the Messiah. Christos, in Greek, is the translation of the Jewish Mashiach, the Messiah. But, uh, so there is really a lot of uh, uh, documentary attestation of Jesus outside of the Christian orbit. And of course, then, then there's the archaeological evidence. Uh, you know, for example, that uh, from a very early age on, maybe as early as the second century, some people believe the late first century, the house in Capernaum, which was sort of the headquarters, the base of the Jesus movement, if you call it that, uh, which was the house of the mother-in-law of Peter, Simon Peter, um, very early on, archaeologists have been able to identify uh, a shrine, which later became a Byzantine church, which later became a Christian church, <laughs> tracing all the way back, uh, attesting to the fact that what the Gospels say, that Jesus launched his ministry in Capernaum, is, is, is really shown by the evidence uh, of these archaeological digs. And, and then, of course, there's a whole, whole large amount of 
of uh, what we could, what we call um, circumstantial evidence. You know, the uh, discovery of a synagogue in Magdala, which is the most exciting thing that happened in the last 15 years in biblical archaeology. Why is that exciting? Well, uh, for a long time we all thought that there were no synagogues in Galilee during the time of Jesus. Why not? Well, there was the temple. You know, for the three main festivals, uh, you went down to the temple. That's what you did. You packed up the kids, and you went down to Jerusalem, and you celebrated in the temple. Uh, so why would you need a synagogue, a purpose-built synagogue? On Shabbat, you would gather at the village well or, you know, in a home of an elder, and that's where you celebrated Shabbat. But you didn't need a dedicated building for that. Well, that whole, that whole theory, which was pretty much in place for much of the 20th century, was completely upstaged when a wonderful Israeli archaeologist discovered this synagogue in Magdala, the, the town of Mary Magdalene, Mary of Magdala, and uh, a coin uh, embedded in the floor of the synagogue shows that it was built or at least it was in existence as early as 27 AD, the time of Jesus. So all of a sudden, entire, the whole house of ideas about faith and religion in Galilee in the time of Jesus, education, because synagogues typically had a little school for boys to learn Hebrew scripture, all that came crushing down. And now we're grappling with the fact that, uh, gee, there were synagogues in the time of Jesus in Galilee. And, and so when, when, when Luke and, and Mark both state that Jesus launched his ministry in the synagogue, and he may actually be correct. So, so that's why all of these different disciplines work together. Not always, but many times they work together. And, and that's where I get very, very excited, Tom, when, when science intersects with the tradition with the biblical oral transmission that's where uh, that's where i get very excited well and it's it's interesting too and it, there's so much to unpack here and i don't know if we'll get it all done in the time that that we have allotted obviously you've written many many books on the subject jean pierre but you said something that that made my ears perk up a little bit when you said linguistically and i wondered how many languages had to be you know, translated and deciphered to piece together bits of information from texts other than the Bible. Not that the Bible doesn't have a lot of interpreting right. to do, depending on which versions you have. Yeah, that, that's a that's a great question, and, and that's a that's a discipline called biblical exegesis. What it means is that um, people study the text and try to discern the underlying oral tradition. All of the Bible, whether we talk about Hebrew scripture, which Christians call the Old Testament, I prefer the word, the word Hebrew scripture, as well as the New Testament, the, the Gospels and so forth, are uh, based on oral tradition. It's important that we remember that. Of course, tradition tells us that uh, the, the, the laws of Moses, the, the Pentateuch or the Torah, as the Jews call them, the Jewish law, was handed down by God to Moses on Mount Sinai. And, and that's, that's a wonderful tradition, and I think it has very important meaning. But historically, that, that segment of the Bible 
was transmitted through multiple oral strands. And uh, in the seventh century, starting with uh, the kingdom of Josiah, uh, Josiah is the one who really said, let's let's start to document these these, these strands. And so it's, it, it's thanks to the scribes of the seventh century all the way through the exile and after the exile that, that these um, very diligent and expert people try to weave these different oral transmissions. Uh, stories told around the campfire from generation to generation were put together in, in a cohesive story. And it's a brilliantly done. And if you read the text and you're not aware of it, you think it's all one single story. But actually, it is a, an excellent and really brilliant uh, weaving together of, of different oral transmissions, each of which originated at a particular point in time and carried its unique cultural context with it. And the same is true uh, for the Gospels. Let, let me give you one example, of, if I may. Um, there are obviously differences between the four Gospels. And the reason is that uh, the evangelists, as brilliant as they were, were not eyewitnesses. They were not physically part of the movement. I know some of the church traditions say that, and I'm very respectful of church tradition. I'm an observant, practicing Christian myself. But as a historian, we have to acknowledge that that the Gospels were written outside of Roman Palestine by scribes who typically were commissioned to do that by the local Christian community. In the case of Mark, Luke, and Matthew, these were Jewish Christian communities because they referred to Passover, they referred to uh, other festivals and customs, and they assumed that their audience understands what they're talking about because their thrust is that Jesus is the Messiah, and they don't have to explain what that is. The Gospel of John is written for a Gentile audience. That's why John has to explain certain things. He has to explain Passover, for example. So there, these, these documents emerged in different places in the Roman Empire for very different audiences. You know, to, to write a book took time, it took money. So typically these Authors were commissioned to do that. And what is so amazing to me is that despite of that, without the Internet, without newspapers, without CNN or Fox News, the four Gospels are so similar. I mean, you have to see a divine hand in there. Yes, there are differences, but I'd rather we focus on what they have in common. Sure. And there are so many stories that they have in common. And so that's that's a long answer to, to your question about the textual analysis. I think the fact that there's so much agreement across the Gospels, despite all these years of oral transmission, that, uh, that we have these Gospels, and they, they are such rich documents. Yeah, a lot, of people don't, a lot of people don't realize that those Gospels were written many years after Christ's death. And, yeah. and and from memory, or as you point out, from oral tradition, the way the stories have been told for a generation. That, that's absolutely right. And 
And in fact, John, the evangelist John, who writes at the very end of the first century, and these, these dates are not cast in stone, but, but we believe that Mark, Mark is the oldest, he writes in 66, between 66 and 70, I believe because of the outbreak of the Jewish war, we could talk a little bit about that, uh, then uh, Luke and Matthew write about uh, 10, 15, 20 years later, clearly with knowledge of Mark's gospel, because about two-thirds of Mark's gospel appears in that of Matthew and Luke, even though they have also other sources that Mark does not have access to. We call that Q or Quelle, the German word for source. It's a putative document. It doesn't, hasn't survived, but we can reconstruct it by, uh, again, analyzing the text of Luke and Matthew. And then you have John, and John actually uh, identifies the, the, the oral testimony, the eyewitness account that on which most of his gospel is, is based. And, and, and even though he writes at the very end of the first century, uh, apparently he also has other sources that were not available to the other three evangelists, such as, for example, the story of the wedding in Cana. Uh, which do not appear in the other gospel. So it's a fast that in itself is a fascinating subject. I, I, I certainly describe it in the book. It's part of the puzzle, if you will. Yeah. Uh, but it's it's a it's a fascinating story. You know, this weekend Christians will be um, remembering the the crucifixion of Jesus and and his resurrection on Easter Sunday, um, at least the way we um, celebrate it in the United States. And my my question is: This is the the whole story has been called the the greatest story ever told. But are there um, definitive records of Christ's crucifixion, arrest records, sentencing records, any kind of historical documents that the um, that the Romans might have kept that verifies that an event took place. Uh, that's, a, that's a great question, and here I, I got to talk a little bit about the the, the jurisprudence uh, at the time. Um, you know, the Romans were. Uh, were very good about applying their law. They had a very highly developed law. In fact, much of that Roman law would be adopted uh, by Europe in the 17th and 18th century and ultimately would filter in into our, our legislation. So it's, it's, um, it's, a, it's a very good uh, set of laws. The, the problem was that Jesus was not a Roman. He was not a Roman citizen, right? We forget that. He was not a Roman citizen. He was a colonial subject, basically a stateless person uh, from the perspective of the uh, Roman authorities. So when you see is that when, when Paul is arrested, according to the book of Acts of the Apostles, uh, the first thing he does is he loudly says, you know, whoa, 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 stop, stop, stop. I'm a citizen. So I'm not going to be dragged in front of a kangaroo court in Jerusalem or some other place in Caesarea, I insist on a proper Roman trial. 
under the use civile, the civil law. And, uh, and he does. And, and the Romans have no choice but to uh, honor that. He's put on the ship, and of course he's shipwrecked, and ultimately he makes his way to Rome. The trial never took place, but in any case, that's what a citizen could do. Jesus didn't have those rights. He only uh, could appeal to a very flimsy law that applied to foreigners like him, which was the use gentium, the law of foreigners. And basically, it was really not a law at all. It gave the local magistrate, whoever that was, a governor or a prefect, full latitude to do what he wanted to do. And there was no need for records to be kept because uh, these colonials, well, they're, you know, they're just a rabble. Who needs to document that? And so we see, for example, that uh, Mark, who, again, is the, the oldest gospel, closest to the historical material, the oral transmissions, I think, describes it very well. This is not a trial. This is a brief hearing. Pilate is having dinner or he's doing something uh, in the evening, and all of a sudden uh, some of his uh, guards bring in this, this, this man, and he says, uh, wait, what, what's the charge? Well, political sedition. He proclaimed himself king of the Jews. And Pilate says, well, what do you have to say about it? And Jesus is largely silent. He says, okay, end of story. There's only one punishment that, that should be meted out for anyone who was contemplating political revolution in the Roman Empire, and by default, that was crucifixion. Same with Spartacus and his followers. They were crucified along the Via Appia. And same with Jesus. There was not even a, a, a debate. It was a foregone conclusion. And so that's why we don't have records, per se, uh, of that time. But we do have Josephus, that Jewish historian who wrote in Rome. So, you know, his, uh, he was funded by the House of Vespasian, the Roman emperor, so he couldn't say anything nasty about Romans, or he would be uh, he would get into trouble, you know, politically correct, uh, first century style. Uh, but still, he has the courage to say in his book that Jesus was crucified under Pontius Pilate, the official Roman governor of the time. So, to me, that is astounding evidence. Uh, both from the Gospels as well as from independent, if you will, Roman documents, that this was a historical event, that this was an historical occurrence. And, uh, of course, then we have Suetonius and we have Tacitus and all the other historians of the first century who also confirmed that, who confirmed the existence of Christus, as they call it, which is a Latin version of Christos, which is, of course, our word Christ, now, that actually means, Christos means the anointed one, which uh, is the translation of the word Mashiach or Messiah. So when we say Jesus Christ, Christ is not his last name, we actually say Jesus the Messiah. That's, that's the meaning of the word Jesus Christ. So anyway, another long answer to your question, but those are the uh, documentation we have of the crucifixion. More about the life of Jesus and the origins of Christianity with biblical scholar Dr. Jean-Pierre Isbouts is straight ahead.
Passion Radio For a new generation Tom Sumner Program.com Tom Sumner Program.com The Tom Sumner Program.com Wash my hands I don't touch my face at home shelter in place social distance don't go to work I wear a mask and gloves stay away from church I avoid old folks and should I sneeze I do it in my elbow or up my sleeve. Six feet apart, that is the rule. And I pray for the day the kids can go back to school. I'm washing my hands like a raccoon with OCD. I've watched Hulu, Roku, Netflix, PBS, and the BBC. I've taken down all my mirrors, and I'm sick of what I see. Two more weeks of quarantine will be the death of me. I risk a trip. TP and a few things more but when I get there all I can find is 16 honey buns and some mad dog wine I'm washing my hands like a raccoon with OCD I've watched Hulu, Roku, Netflix, PBS, and the BBC. I've taken down all my mirrors, cause I'm sick of what I see. Yeah, two more weeks of this quarantine's gonna be the death of me. The death of me. You know, they say this is war. But we don't have to storm Omaha Beach or Porkchop Hill. And we just lay here on the couch and watch TV. I'd rather volunteer for a high-risk commando raid to parachute into Wuhan and find that little fellow that ordered that bat soup. I know I'm talking out of my head, saying crazy stuff over and over like, yes, dear, yes, dear. At breakfast, I meant to say, honey, please pass me the pepper. Well, what slipped out was, you crazy woman, you've ruined my life. <laughs> of course,
course, I immediately apologized as soon as I regained consciousness. From the Tom Sumner Show. Oh, yeah. Hello there, citizens. Darkwing Duck here. And every time I'm in Flint fighting crime, I always stop by the Tom Sumner program. Don't forget, stay dangerous. Darkwing Duck out. While we've been staying safe at home, scientists have been on a journey. The destination, a COVID-19 vaccine. This journey began decades ago with research into other coronaviruses. Scientists built from there with months of research and development, cooperation with other experts worldwide, and clinical trials on tens of thousands of volunteers of diverse race, age, and health status. They arrived at a safe, effective vaccine and hundreds of thousands in Michigan have already been vaccinated. But the next step is ours. We need to get the vaccine when we can, keep wearing masks correctly, and taking precautions until we reach our destination, freedom from COVID-19, and getting back to the lives we love. Discover the facts for yourself at michigan.gov slash COVID vaccine. A message from the Michigan Department of Health and Human Services. The Tom Sumner Program has hosted live candidate forums for local, state, and national offices at bars, restaurants, coffee shops, and colleges. Armchair Politics has gone to Lansing, Frankenmuth, Birch Run, and Hell. Hell, Michigan, that is. We've done shows all the way to the Mighty Mac and back to the bricks. We've done remotes from a baseball stadium in Lansing, a grocery store opening in Flint, and from a moving train. We'd like you to tell us where to go next. You can write to us at TomSumnerProgram.com, call us at 810-339-8255, or contact us on Facebook. This is your chance to tell the Tom Sumner Program where to go. Say, objection. I object. I object to that, Your Honor. Oh, oh. hi, Mom. What's up? Dana, what are you doing? Oh, you know, just um, Attorney General stuff. Listen, I have a legal question. What is it, Mom? I just got a call from the water company. Apparently, your father has not been paying the bill. I guess they're going to turn the water off because we owe more than $1,000 now. Can you believe it? Actually, I can't. So listen, we just have to send them $200 in Edible Arrangements gift cards and that will keep the water on. Now, here's the legal question. What is the website for Edible Arrangements? Mom, it's an imposter scam. Imposter scam. Is that .com or .edu? No, the call was a scam. Scammers will pretend to be a government agency or a utility company or someone else you might do business with. A big red flag is if they tell you 
that you can pay them using gift cards. So when in doubt, ask for the information to be sent to you in writing. And never give a caller or someone you don't know your personal information or your money. If you do suspect an imposter scam, report it to my office at mi.gov slash agcomplaints. Okay, all right. And Dina, where do I file a complaint that my daughter hasn't visited in over a month? Does your office have a website for that? Okay, Mom, I'm hanging up now. I'm Michigan Attorney General Dana Nessel. Visit mi.gov slash agcomplaints for your connection to consumer protection. This is U.S. Senator Gary Peters, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. More about the life of Jesus and the origins of Christianity with biblical scholar Dr. Jean-Pierre Isbouts is straight ahead. The arrest itself, um, you suggest, was uh, actually um, brought about by his protest in the temple. Uh, when he called the high priest uh, Caiaphas and the chief priests a den of thieves. That's according to uh, to Mark. Um, when you look back at those events um, from the 21st century and you see different accounts of the same events, are you are you able to see through, like, the political correctness of uh, Jehephas? Well, th- this is a great question, and uh, uh, it's interesting that uh, all of the evangelists base their passion story on Mark. Uh, when you look at the other stories of Jesus and his ministry, there's a wide variety of, of all transmission, and so there are some differences. But when you look at the passion, the passion is entirely based on Mark's version and we believe that Mark himself based that on a possibly a, a document that's referred to as the cross gospel. That's just a name. You know, we don't know. It, we, we no longer have it. But both but Luke, Matthew, and John all based their passion story on Mark. They embellish it. John creates these beautiful monologues around it. But it all goes back to Mark. And... This is what I try to do in, in the book, in the footsteps. What I try to do is reconstruct those events hour by hour. What happened? Why did it happen that way? Uh, where did it take place? How did you get from A to B and B to C? And, and uh, my conclusions are that Jesus created this little riot in the forecourt of the temple you know, when he chased the money changes out of the temple, because uh, this was unprecedented that lambs were going to be offered for sale to be sacrificed at Passover in the temple itself that had never been done before. And and I I rely on some other authors who have also studied this. Up to this point, the sale of sacrificial lambs for sacrifice at Passover took place on um, the Mount of Olives. A you know, lot, lot of space, a lot of space. You would walk around, you'd pick your lamb, you'd pay for it with any currency that you happen to have, and you took that animal all the way down from the Mount of Olives through the Valley of Kidron, up the hill, through the throngs, the crowds of Passover, 
into the temple. Well, you can imagine, by the time that poor animal got into the temple, it was beaten up, and the priest would say, sorry, it's not unblemished. Off you go, you can't use it. Well, obviously, these people were upset. So what Caiaphas did, he said, look, why don't we bring the sale of these lambs inside the temple? First of all, we can decree, we can certify that these lambs are unblemished and fit for Passover. Second of all, you don't have to take them all through kingdom come. You can just take them from the forecourt directly into uh, the inner court of the altar where the lamb would be. It's a brilliant idea. There's one little, one little, little detail here. You could not use Roman currency in the temple. Why not? Because Roman currency had the image of the emperor. And any images of living people were not allowed in Judaism, certainly not in the temple itself. So you had to take your Roman currency and change it, or Greek currency for that matter, and change it into the only currency allowed in the temple walls, which is the Tyrian shekel. So that's why there are money changes. So it all makes perfect sense. The problem is that Jesus wasn't aware of that. So here he comes, right? And in my book, I, I describe that he planned to give a, a sermon, uh, just like Jeremiah had done, the prophet Jeremiah, who was a great influence on his ministry. And he, he's all prepped to go, the apostles are with him, and he goes into the forecourt, and he, he's getting ready to, you know, he's going to stand there, and he's going to give this, this beautiful, beautiful speech that will rally people around the kingdom of God. And what? The place is like a bazaar, like a kashba, Right? screaming merchants, uh, throwing out prices and money changes, throwing their currency rates. It's a zoo. And that's when he gets upset. And he starts to say, you know, you, you have made this uh, a den of thieves. And, and this is so interesting. And I, I don't think any other scholar, and I have the deepest respect for my peers, but I don't think any other scholar has ever related uh, the ministry of Jesus to something that happened in 27, 28 A.D., which is when Pilate and Caiaphas were in collusion to steal money from the treasury of the temple. Josephus reports that these are only source. Caiaphas and Pilate were in collusion to steal money from the temple in order to build, that was their excuse, an aqueduct. Never happened. And so you can imagine when Jesus, just 18 months later, comes into the temple and throws out to Caiaphas, you've made this a den of thieves, he, that is immediately uh, interpreted as another accusation for what they did just 18 months earlier with the aqueduct affair. And that's why the warrant for his arrest went out, and that's why he was ultimately arrested, and that's why Caiaphas has this animus against Jesus, uh, and he, he wants to see him indicted and crucified, and that's why the indictment takes place in his own home, which is completely illegal, because all hearings of the Sanhedrin have to take place with a full quorum in the temple. He does it in secret, he does it in his own home, and when he obviously lacks the quorum to condemn Jesus to death, he hands him over to the Romans, and he says, here's a political rebel knowing full well that that would be instant execution. Anyway, that's a long answer to your question, but that's how these things evolve. I, I like your long answers, Jean-Pierre. 
Um, <laughs> but unfortunately, we're running out of time, and I feel like we've we've just barely scratched the surface, and certainly not dug in as deep as as you have over the last fifteen years. Um, but I do always want to give guests an opportunity to let listeners know where they can find out more about what we've been talking about. Now, obviously, the book I mentioned, In the Footsteps of Jesus, A Chronicle of His Life and the Origins of Christianity, the second edition uh, is out, and um, that's from National Geographic, and you've done many books for National Geographic. But so people might find out a little bit more about you and your work past, present, and future. Do you have a website? Yes, I have a website. It's uh, jpisbots, J-P-I-S-B-O-U-T-S dot org, uh, where you can find lots more about um, my books and in the footsteps in particular. You can also go to a wonderful social media platform that I use a lot. It's called Vimeo, Vimeo, V-I-M-E-O, very simple. And if you go there, just uh, enter uh, In the Footsteps of Jesus. You will go straight to a series of video podcasts that I've done, uh, particularly for Easter, since so many uh, people are not able to celebrate Easter in church. Uh, So I made a a series of podcasts with lots of beautiful images and pictures uh, based on the book. And in there you will also find uh, links to my website and, and other sources. Well, thanks so much for spending this time with us, uh, Jean-Pierre, and keep up the good work. Thanks so much, Tom, for having me. It's been a pleasure. Take care. That was uh, Dr. Jean-Pierre Isbout. He is the uh, author of In the Footsteps of Jesus, a Chronicle of His Life and the Origins of Christianity from National Geographic, now in its second edition. But he's... uh, written several um, books for National Geographic on uh, um, the Bible and and Christianity. So uh, be sure and uh, check him out at uh, jpisbouts.org. And with that, we'll have more of the Tom Sumner program straight up.
Don't touch that dial. You're listening to Tom Sumner.